This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Mike Smith in for Simi. It's the second last day of the year. Tomorrow is New Year's Eve. The year is almost done. We still don't have those ride-hailing services that were promised by the government over and over and over again, including Transportation Minister Claire Trevena talking to Simi uh, back on October 31st. Have a listen. Can you guarantee it will be by the end of the year? I'm confident it's going to be by the end of the year. Confident. Is that the same as, yes, we will have it by the end of the year? Well, we we uh, have to let the Passenger Transportation Board, they are working through their own processes, and uh, I have every expectation that we will be having ride hail here by the end of the year. Okay, that was October 31st, Halloween, so maybe she was just tricking us all. Here's the question today. Despite promises these services will be here by the end of the year, Uber and Lyft still not operational. When do you expect these ride-hailing services to be available in your area? Would you say by the end of March, by the end of 2020, after 2020, or never? At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find the hot question today. At CKNW on Twitter. Phone me on the buzz line today and leave me a voicemail about it. 604-331-BUZZ. 604-331-2899. Oh, this is Mike Smith filling in for Simi Sarah. Local Jewish congregations in Vancouver will be using the final service of Hanukkah tonight to remember those injured in the horrific stabbings at the home of a New York rabbi. The Beth Israel Synagogue in Vancouver says it will hold its, hold its final service this morning. It would also ask people to post pictures of their menorah to show their support to the five people who were injured in that mass stabbing that occurred on Saturday. It comes following concerns that have been raised this year about an increase in anti-Semitic crimes. Let's check in now with Ezra Shankin, CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Vancouver. Hi, Ezra, thank you for coming on. Well, thank you, Mike, for uh, having us and giving us the space to talk. I appreciate your time. First of all, I just want to extend my sympathies to the whole Jewish community for what we saw in New York and some of the other crimes that we're, we're seeing. What is your reaction to what you heard coming out of New York there? Yeah, we, we were obviously horrified and outraged by what happened in Muncie, which actually capped off uh, uh, a good number of days of uh, attacks that were happening in the area. Uh, you know, for people to be attacked in, in a place of prayer, uh, is uh, deeply disturbing. Uh, I do have to say uh, we we praise uh, local law enforcement and, and government at all levels who work tirelessly to respond uh, to these terrible acts, and uh, we uh, were also heartened to uh, receive uh, immense support from uh, local law enforcement uh, here and uh, across Canada. Uh, there has been an arrest in that case in in New York. Why do you think this is happening? As you mentioned, it's just one of several disturbing incidents we've seen, and anti-Semitic crimes do seem to be on the rise. Why is it happening? Do you think? Yeah, I, I'm not. An, I have to tell you, I'm not an expert in the, in the psychology of this. Um, I I can say that whatever is happening will not work, and uh, that we're going to continue to work as a community to create an open and welcoming community. When I got into this work 15 years ago, we weren't uh, obviously facing off against the same um, uh, the same ferocity and obviously frequency of of events. And many of us who came in when when I came in weren't even coming in 
to battle this type of battle, but we are for sure not going to be deterred um, by these latest actions. Of course, this comes at Hanukkah time, the eight-day Festival of Lights, Mm -hmm. which finishes up today. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Hanukkah and some of the uh, events happening today? Yeah, so last night was was actually the final night that we that we lit candles. Okay. Uh, we were actually quite heartened. Uh, in short notice, we launched a a beautiful, beautiful campaign, uh, light against hate, uh, for people within the Jewish community and friends of the Jewish community to join together uh, after the incidents in 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 Muncie and and the other incidents that uh, came in prior days. Uh, to light our full menorah of candles, to bring out light of love, and to show that we are standing shoulder to shoulder against incidents like this, and really, more importantly, standing for a community that's open and welcoming and full of love. Well, I think that's a beautiful thing to do. Um, We've seen, is there rising anti-Semitism in our country, too? Well, I, I think that if anybody's uh, a follower like we are of the StatsCan report, uh, you'll see that, that anti-Semitism is still very high on the list, as, as are um, uh, the, the uh, racism that's happening across, uh, across the country against other groups. Uh, but it, you know, it is, is definitely prevalent, and we, we take it very, very seriously in, in the Jewish community. You know, in 2017, we, we hired a, a community security director for the first time, and, uh, you know, that individual has been working tirelessly to make sure that we are responding effectively to the evolving threats that, that might exist. Uh, we're thrilled wow. with the work that's been able to be done, uh, over, over that time, but, that is, uh, in, in many ways, grounded in uh, government statistics. Speaking to Ezra Shankin, CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Vancouver, it's kind of a sad commentary to hear that you have to have security, right? I mean, is security been stepped up at all synagogues in Vancouver? Yeah, I, you know, we've been very, very proud of the unity of this community in working to educate itself on how we can create uh, safe spaces that are also open spaces. You know, this is kind of for faith and ethnocultural community security is a, is a is a challenge because we want to be open. Right. We want to make sure that we're places that are open and loving. But at the same time, we have to take a bit of a stature and understanding that not everybody out there is uh, has the best of intentions. Uh, and we're working to train many of our synagogues and other institutions to ensure that they can build that balance into their day-to-day existence. We've seen some incidents here in British Columbia. I remember in, in September, uh, the windows of an, an NDP campaign candidate, Rachel Blaney, and mm-hmm. the North Island Powell River were vandalized by graffiti, mm-hmm. including a large red swastika. Mm-hmm. Uh, police in Victoria were investigating in July after swastikas appeared downtown. Uh, back in June racist uh, swastika graffiti again uh, showing up uh, in Coquitlam. I mean, it's, it's disturbing, right? I mean, it, it, it's frightening. What kind of message can, can you send out to kind of, kind of counteract it? Well, one of the things that I would say is, that, you know, we, we should say that, that just last week, I believe it was just last week, I can't believe it, uh, you know, our own Camp Miriam on Gabriela Island was uh, defaced with swastikas right, and right. other lewd graffiti. And, um, you know, what we say out to the community is we should all understand that symbols matter. 
you know, especially when they represent uh, the hatred that fueled the loss of the lives of millions of innocent men, women, and children, Jewish, non-Jewish, and the countless servicemen and women who who died in the service of going over there to try and stop this evil from spreading. You know, and yeah. we were obviously very heartened that, that, that the camp followed the procedures that we had put in place. Uh, they were in touch with the RCMP, who have, who have been great, and obviously even the VPD Hate Crimes Unit, even though they're not out on the island, they've been a great advisor on it, and our security director's been working alongside. We're obviously looking forward to a great season uh, 2020 of camp, and I'm looking forward to being there and enjoying it with, uh, with the kids, but it's yet another example. I like what you said about the the openness, that obviously security is kind of a sad fact of life in, in this atmosphere, but you want to remain open. You want synagogues to be open. You want these places to be welcoming and, and open. And I think maybe maybe kind of the worst thing to do would be to fight hate with more hate. Like it, maybe the answer is more open and openness and welcoming and love, right? Yeah, I actually think that one of the one of the positive things that has come out of these recent incidents is is the amount of support that we've received across the community. Yeah. Um, I think that this is a language we can speak with many vulnerable groups. I mean, I can't speak for other groups, and I'm not an expert on other groups, but surely there are many groups across our province that feel a sense of vulnerability. And in that, we can find a common language to, to speak to each other, that surely spiritual spaces should be able to be both open and safe. Uh, within within our province and across North America and around the world. Totally agree with you. Thank you very much for coming on. Oh, thank you so much, and a happy holidays to everybody who's celebrating. No matter what you're celebrating, we're celebrating along with you. Tell me if these any of these names ring a bell for you. The Cave, the Town Pump, the Smiling Buddha. I remember that place. Richards on Richards. Everyone remembers that one. Graceland's Oil Can Harry's. These are all late, great Vancouver nightclubs, cabarets, live music venues. They may be gone, but they are certainly not forgotten. The history of these legendary clubs is documented in a great new book, Vancouver After Dark, The Wild History of a City's Nightlife by Aaron Chapman, and he joins me now. Aaron, thanks a lot for coming in. Thanks, Mike. Good to be with you. This is a great idea for a book, and it's <laughs> certainly getting uh, some terrific reviews. So congratulations. And you, uh, I know you've written some earlier books. Uh, you wrote one about uh, the Commodore, I recall, and mm -hmm. which is, of course, still going strong. But this is this book is about clubs that have disappeared, right? That's right. It's uh, it focuses on book on on pardon me clubs that are um, that are no longer around in Vancouver that we're still talking about right. decades later after they've gone in some cases. So there's something special that I, I thought was sort of happening in, in our collective memory and in our in our cultural history in the city that I thought it'd be an interesting time to look back on on some of those places. What made them special? Do you think, or certainly special to Vancouver? Well, it's interesting, you know, because in many ways, Vancouver's well-placed to, uh, it's not just something, these are these are certainly clubs that people uh, have great memories of and are fond enough for, but there was something sort of extra special going on in the sense that um, many of these, many of the, 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 the times of, of touring uh, and some of the, that go back to vaudeville days in Vancouver, yeah. uh, set some of these clubs up. Uh, you know, there are a lot of shows and a lot of acts in the 50s and 60s that, that uh, 
came up the coast and played some of these clubs, um, but didn't go anywhere else necessarily, and or didn't delve, you know, continue on through Eastern Canada. They turned back around and headed down the coast. So Vancouver's always a little bit sort of spoiled that way. Uh, that we we saw lots of entertainment and and a lot of the local bands sort of probably profited from that cross pollination of some of these groups that came to town. So there's there's interesting things that in in going that are sort of unique to Vancouver and maybe unique to Western Canada that way in terms of our entertainment history. And of course, the whole history of the city starts off yeah. with Gassy Jacks. You know, the the, yeah. the city began with a bar. So it's right. kind of <laughs> it's it's sort of wonderful in that sense that, uh, that that entertainment has always been an industry that we sometimes don't always think about as being so much of a part of Vancouver. What are some of the most famous clubs in your mind that jump out at you and jump off the pages of your book and some of the famous uh, entertainers that, that played there? Well, if, you know, it, 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 that's a question that it, it, it's interesting if you ask uh, somebody in Vancouver about their favorite. It always depends on what decade, you know, like yeah. the, that maybe that person was, was going out and, <laughs> and, and whatnot. So, you know, it's funny that, that you know, the, the Cave, for instance, which is a, a very sort of uh, one of the favorite clubs of Vancouver over the years just because of the litany of stars that played there over the years. You know, that, that closed in 81, but, we're, but it's still talked about and still sort of missed, in, even though we've had many other venues and whatnot. Um, another generation certainly remembers Love Affair or, or the Smiling Buddha or the Town Pump or some of the more recent clubs or Gracelands. Um, so every generation in Vancouver seems to have, you know, lost a favorite night spot. Now, the city's not supposed to be a museum. We're not expected to necessarily have these clubs around forever, and some of them only maybe meet a certain place in time. Um, but when some of these places disappear uh, over the years, then some of the DNA of the city changes, I think, uh, when we lose these night spots. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. The cave is real famous, right? Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, who played there? I mean, James Brown, Ray oh. Charles, Liza Minnelli. I mean, Everybody. It's a long list. Yeah, I mean, you, 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 it, when the, the cave essentially gets going, uh, you know, in the 30s, late 30s, so it... it, it it's a it's a situation where there's so many stars over there because you you have sort of the radio stars of the day. Then you the really the the the, the rise of the nightclub performer hits its you know hits stride just when the cave is going strong. So through the 50s and 60s and and into the 70s, it started to change in the 70s. But um, you know that it hits you know so many people uh, and so many artists came to there and other places like Izzy Supper Club or Oil Can Harry's. All these clubs had such great names too. Yeah. I, I mean you know some <laughs> of the clubs that, that are around today are are the modern ones. They don't have those evocative wonderful names. Oh, Can Harry's. What a great place to go yeah. to. <laughs> no kidding. That yeah. is a great name for sure. Now, the uh, the history of some of these clubs, The wonderful, one of the wonderful things about your book is you also get into some of the the wild characters who ran these places, right? What would you say about them? Oh, gosh. Well, that's the thing. A certain kind of person gets involved in the nightclub business. It's not necessarily a business for stuffed shirts in any sense. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, time and time again, some of the people that got involved in these clubs weren't necessarily on the up and up. Uh, you know, Les Stork, uh, a fascinating guy who ran a place called The Bunkhouse that was down on Davy and Seymour there. You know, he he shows up later in a, in a drug smuggling incident while when after his club had, had uh, during the during his club days, and there's there's another, there was another guy involved in in the uh, there was a place a club soda that people might remember later called the Starfish Room, um, and uh, that 
place was originally called the Quadra Club, and for a time in the 1970s was run by a stand-up comic by the name of Barry Berenson, who was later ensnared in, in an FBI uh, arrest for bank fraud when he was when he the his girlfriend who was worked in a local bank branch here in Vancouver tried to siphon some funds uh, <laughs> out of the bank branch. So there's these wild stories about some of the people that, that the book is about. You know the history of some of these clubs, but it's also about some of the fascinating and rather irreverent people that are in charge of some of these places. Yeah, for sure. I'm speaking to Aaron Chapman. He's a writer, historian, musician about his new book, Vancouver After Dark, The Wild History of a City's Nightlife. When people think about the nightlife in Vancouver now, Aaron, I guess they think about the Granville Entertainment District, mm-hmm. but there were different entertainment districts of the city that moved around over the years, right? Oh, that's certainly true. You know, there's, there's, um, you know, it, it, one thing about Vancouver's entertainment scene and its nightlife thing, it's, it's the, those centers have moved around. They were never sort of official centers, like in the way maybe that the Granville Entertainment District is, is now. But, you know, for many years, Hornby Street, when it had the cave and the living room, and Gary Taylor's Rock Room, through, you know, in the 60s and 70s, that was such a, a – Hornby Street, you go to Hornby Street today with, you know, the, the bank towers that are there and whatnot, you wouldn't think that was, you know, the sort of golden street of dreams at night yeah. uh, back then, you know, but it was. And then, you know, in another era, it, it, it sort of gas town uh, takes over. And then there's always been sort of the, the little outlier places and whatnot, but the, the move to, to shift everything onto the Granville Entertainment District and, you know – resulted in, in many ways in some places like uh, Richards on Richards and the Starfish Room and some of those more recent clubs disappearing just because of property you know uh, values and the way right. they are. Real estate's always been a factor, more so than necessarily club mismanagement or a place burning down, uh, as it did with the Metro in, in 1990, I believe, um, or 89 it was. I, there was um, there's always been that... Um, there's always been that factor that, that uh, some of these places yeah. are, are – some of these – in case these buildings are very old and they're not necessarily meant to stand as long as they were. But uh, property development has, has uh, altered in the future of many nightclubs more than some of the other factors have in town. Your calls now, 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Reg and Poco. Hey, Mike. Happy New Year, Aaron, too. Same to you. Thank you. I remember these places. We were just talking about it, my sisters and I, on Christmas Day, talking about all these old places like Lassiter's Den. And, and Aaron, wasn't there a place on Broadway near Burrard called Starvin Marvin's Bump City? Yes, that was uh, Marvin Goldhar, uh, a very interesting figure, a little bit in the vein of Les Stort because he ended up being uh, being murdered, actually. Um, but Mar- Starvin Marvin's, yeah, that was uh, he had a couple of different clubs and also ran uh, had something down on Davy Street for a time too. But he was a uh, he was a fascinating figure. Now, back in the seventies, there used to be a place in Gastown where you, before nineteen eighty six, that is, because mm-hmm. uh, no one was open on Sundays. That's right. You had to drive down to Point Roberts to drink. That's right. So there was a place in Gastown that we discovered you could buy a cheese plate and nurse that baby all night, and then you could drink, and it was in Gastown, but I don't remember the name. Do you remember the name of that place? Jeez, well, that, that, what you're talking about is, is of a certain era when the liquor laws, uh, you know, so much of the of the... The, the nightlife entertainment has been dictated by some of the liquor laws over the years, going back uh-huh. to when BC had prohibition. A lot of people don't realize that not just the states had the prohibition. We had it in in, uh, in British Columbia, too, in 1917, and it ended in 21. But 
later on after they changed the saloon laws into cabaret laws and things like this and the liquor licensing they you had to you had to serve some kind of food that yeah. there there and and often the food was was pretty pretty terrible and it was not not worth eating but uh it was kind of left out for people to to at least get something in their gut uh, rather than the uh, the loggers beer that they were drinking so yeah. there was a few different places like that certainly the pig and whistle uh it, which was around well into the 1990s uh you know had that and and continued that kind of they had that license that dictated uh, that right. for many years. So there's a few different places like that, especially in Gastown, that ran that way. Reg, thanks yeah. for the call. Let's go to Mike and Vernon. Hey, Mike. Hey, good morning, guys. This was a great. I could go on for hours. Um, <laughs> oh, you could for sure. Well, I was. I was. Well, I. I. You know, I was 20 years old in 1978, and uh, talk about hitting it right on the numbers. We were in all those bars all the time. The Love Affair. Um, Smiling Buddha Cabaret, of course, the uh, the um, uh, Commodore Ballroom, mm-hmm. and uh, contrary to what a lot of people say, I was not there for you twenty or for you two. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's but funny. When you, when you two played Vancouver a few years ago, they you know Bono on stage gave a shout, "Hey, who remembers seeing us play at the Commodore Ballroom?" Wow. And, and and fifty five thousand yeah. people cheer. Now, of yeah, course, right. the Commodore only holds about eleven hundred people, thousand people, so about yeah. fifty four thousand of those were lying. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Oh. Well, you know, the other, the other thing, too, was that, uh, you know, there was, at that time, um, there was a lot of bars outside of the Vancouver mm-hmm. area that were good. I mean, you used to go to the Boo Pub on a regular basis. There was, like, two or three good rock rooms out in Surrey. Oh, yeah. Um, Burnaby. I mean, that was the thing back then. There was all of, you know, they had the Ox come into Vancouver, and they would play the clubs downtown. But then there was all of the, the local acts, you know, um, I'm thinking uh, Dawn Patrol. Sure. Um, I, I, can't, I can't remember the names of them all anymore. But there were so many that played. And, and that's what's missing now is there's just mm. so few uh, live music venues to go and see a really good show, you know, even if it's a small venue, and, and to watch local talent play. And that's, that's the part that's, uh, that's kind of okay. disappointing. Um, you know, from I talked to my son about it, and he just shakes his head and goes, "Wow, would I have loved to have been able to do what you guys did?" Right. Thanks, thanks, Mike. Well, the Commodore is still going strong, but you know, I'm sure seeing you too in a club like that. My goodness. Uh, but you know we have lost a lot, don't you think, Aaron? I think so. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, you know, things are always changing. I, I, I remain, uh, you know, pe- people often say, "Oh, the, the great days of clubs are over and whatnot." But I, I remain positive on that. I think, you know, music changes as well. So, right, uh, right. you know, what the kids, a lot of, you know, the kids today, there, you know, there's this <laughs> attitude that, that that they somehow missed out. Well, the one thing about the golden age of things, it always, it's always moving. Everybody, everybody says that the best time to be around in Vancouver sometimes was just happened to be when they were in their 20s or right. 30s right. and 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 the fact of the matter is it, it changes over time you know um, and, and there are certainly the, the caller's right to say that you know there were so many great live music clubs back then and that's changed because there's all sorts of places where you just hear a DJ now and and some of the tastes have changed and maybe it needs to to go some live music stuff has to go underground a little bit to come back and, and the trends change but you know there's yeah. still some great live music rooms today there's there, sure. you know of course the Commodore as you say but you know right. the Imperial and the Rickshaw Theater and there's there's new clubs that have opened up that don't necessarily have that history maybe to a, an older generation that maybe nowhere to go that happens also along with the fact that the, the scene changes so much and and where what where they used to go on Hornby Street, they don't see anything. Okay. You know those some of those new places are now in Gastown or, or on the east side and whatnot. Okay. So it's it's always changing. Squeezing a couple more calls. Yeah. Here. Hiya, Martin. Hey, happy holidays, guys. How's everyone today? Good, Martin. Good. Excellent. I just want to touch upon a couple of places that uh, I used to go to in my 
younger days and my teens in the punk rock scene and the yeah. heavy metal scene, um, especially uh, the UBC sub ballroom. Mm-hmm. Yes. And yeah. uh, I remember seeing SNF, SNFU and DOA there a few times. That was incredible. Yeah. And uh, the New York Theater on commercial. Mm-hmm. Got to see lots of good, uh, lots of good bands. Metallica also, played there, and yeah, Metallica. Wow. Metallica played there. I saw Town uh, Tool at the Town Pump. Mm-hmm. Yes, and uh, you know they're filling, still filling stadiums nowadays. Yeah, and uh, you know the, the the cool thing about some of those places, the, the Town Pump, I remember was they used to do a lot of uh, all ages shows. They'd have the bands would come in do an all ages show in the afternoon, and then play the uh, over nineteen crowd, nineteen and over crowd after that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was pretty fun back then, for sure, to be able to see bands that were uh, able to help the kids that, uh, you know, weren't of age out, but you could still go and support the bands. For sure, yeah. Martin, thank you for the call. Let's talk to Anne in Nanaimo. Hi, Anne. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Happy New Year to to you all. Uh, I was uh, living in Newcastle, New Brunswick at the time. I came out to to, uh, Vancouver to visit my girlfriend. She said, oh, we're going to the cave tonight. Well, I didn't know what she was talking about, but we went <laughs> to the cave, and uh, it was like a dinner at first. We didn't go to the dinner. We didn't have that kind of money. We were only 20. Anyway, it Nancy Sinatra and Tommy Sands wow. were the features, and I can still remember Nancy came out with those white boots. These <laughs> boots are made for walking. Oh, there you go. Yeah, and she was wonderful, and Tommy Sands was pretty good, too. And then after, we went backstage, and they signed autographs. Oh, boy, what a wonderful memory. And thank you for that call. Yeah, those boots are made for (laughs) walking, for sure. Let's squeeze in one more. Joan in Vancouver. Hiya, Joan. We just got a minute left, okay? Hi, hi. Yes, I used to uh, sing in a band called um, the Vancouver Accents, and we were known as the Soul Sisters. We were the backup singers, and we used to play at Oil Can Harry's and... I think there was a place called Retinal Circus. Retinal on Circus, yeah, exactly, yeah. And I remember seeing we we went to the cave one time and we um, we saw the Supremes playing at the at the oh, cave. But my. we had a really good time and um, Seafine used to play our music on Friday nights and Saturday nights from Oil cool. Can Harry's. Oh, that's wonderful, Joan. Thank you for the call. Uh, you know what? Uh, Aaron, an earlier call said we could probably talk for hours about this. And, <laughs> and we could. We could probably fill a whole show with, these, so. with these memories. Where can people get your book? It's available in any bookstore in BC, uh, certainly Chapters, Book Warehouse, Black Bond Bookstores, the small stores, big stores. It is the, I'm proud to say it's the number one book in BC on the wow. BC bestsellers list right now. So awesome. just call ahead and make sure they have one in because the, the <laughs> stores have been trying to keep up with orders. I'm, I'm very happy with the way it's that, uh, that BCers have, uh, well, have accepted the book. It's an awesome idea for a book, Aaron. Congratulations on your success with it and thanks for coming in thanks mike uh very pleased to welcome now don wilson who is the new owner of little sisters bookstore he's a friend of bruce smith don thanks for coming on uh thank you don first of all my condolences in the loss of your friend let's talk a little before we talk about little sisters let's talk a little bit about bruce what what can you tell me about him well bruce was a non-assuming guy very quiet uh, heavily into the accounting end of things and over the past number of years Bruce had kidney disease and was partially blind, lost his partner in 2014, lost his dog a year later. So he had gone through quite a bit, but he didn't really let that affect him. Mm. You know, we had many great breakfasts at Joe's Grill on Davy, and that's mm-hmm. where we sort of chatted and hung out. And he came by and was always giving me a hard time about different things. And I took over the store when Jim passed away for Bruce as his management, and then he later sold it to me. 
Okay, I'm sorry for the loss of your friend there, Don, for sure. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Little Sisters. When did Bruce uh, co-found Little Sisters? In 1983. Yeah, and that was a different time and era, wasn't it? Like, it wasn't, we didn't have the same openness that we have now. It was difficult to run, like, an openly gay and lesbian bookstore in the city back then. Yeah, it was very difficult. The store previously was on Thurlow Street and had a couple of firebombs thrown up in the hallway wow. and people didn't want that store there but they persisted and in 1996 moved it to david street to a larger location right so he faced a lot of opposition but what what was in uh, bruce and his partner's dna there to kind of keep it going i mean he must have had some stick to and toughness about him too i imagine oh he was they were very tough about it they yeah. definitely were not going to let it slide and they had a manager at that time who really helped along with their legal battles. Right. What were some of the legal battles they went through? Well, they had to take on customs, Yeah. you know, and that went on through the 1990s until I think it was in 2000 when they finally won the case. Yeah. And I pretty re- much since then, a lot of the customs problems have subsided. Every once in a while it rears up, but not too much. Yeah, as I recall, I recall those stories, Don, and there was like obscenity laws at the time, right? There was like material getting stopped at the border. Exactly. Yeah. And it was uh, they were letting some stuff through, but anything that came through for Little Sisters, it was tagged, and a lot of the pages were ripped out. We never saw the shipments. What, what sort of uh, need did Little Sisters uh, provide for the community in the city? Why was it an important place? It was a safe place for people to come to, not be judged, and, you know, a really a safe place to hang out. And a lot of people came out. This was the first place that they came to because they could feel comfortable there and talk to people about their problems they were going through, whether it was their family or friends or something or were judging them for whatever they were. Yeah, and when you're talking about the early 80s, it was still not a, an easy time for people to come out of the closet, right? Exactly. Yeah. It, it was a, totally a taboo subject. Yeah. When uh, you mentioned like fire fire bombings of the place, how, how often did that happen? It happened two or three times. Yeah, right. But it they persisted and was able to get it fixed right away and get reopened. When did you take over the store? In 2016, I managed it after 2014 when Jim died. Okay, okay. So you were managed you were managing there before you took the store over. Exactly, because Bruce was partially blind as well, so a lot of things he couldn't do. Right. Tell me, tell me about the bookstore now. What, what kind of, uh, what sort of operation do you have going there now? Well, we we carry books, clothing, you know, adult novelties, cards, gifts. You know, it's sort of expanded into, you know, an emporium. Everything. <laughs> yeah. What do you so, think, Bruce? What do you think is uh, Bruce's legacy? in the city i think that he's going to be remembered for you know opening up one of the first stores in vancouver yeah and it certainly was a a, do you remember like when he was going through the opposition the legal fights the fire bombings i'm sure there was a lot of hate going on as well i mean what, what what do you recall of those of those days and and how he how he handled it how he managed it they were very adamant that they were going to win that whole battle and that sooner or later people were going to give up condemning it. 
Mm-hmm. Who did they? Who were they fighting in court? Who was trying to stop them? Oh, the customs. Yeah. Yeah. And they ended up winning the court cases, right? Yeah, in 2000 they won, yeah. Well, Don, I'm sorry for the loss of your friend. Thank you for coming on to thank you for coming on to talk about him. Okay, thank you for calling. Right, let's take a look back now at a busy year in BC politics. Got one of the best guests around to break it down for us, Richard Zussman, who is Global News reporter at the BC Legislature. Richard, thanks a lot for coming in. It's many my pleasure. Great to be here as always. Okay, I follow you on Twitter, and I encourage all listeners to do that if you're interested in politics in this province. And you've been doing an interesting series of sort of Twitter polls to go directly to the people and to the global listeners and viewers and ask them what they thought was the big story of 2019 in politics. So what did you find out? Let's break down some of the big stories that we got here yeah. this year. So we started with 20, had a bit of a play in bracket to get to the big 16, and we're now down to the final two. So if you want to have your voice heard, uh, head to my Twitter account, at Richard Zussman to vote. And the finalists are... A money laundering public inquiry versus the legislative spending scandal. And right now where we stand, it is tight. 52% for the money laundering inquiry, 48% for the legislature scandal. The money laundering public inquiry just made it to the final Smitty by a few votes beating out ICBC. Clearly, those three stories, ICBC money laundering and the legislature scandal, were the biggest three stories of 2019 here in British Columbia. There were some other big stories, obviously, the fight around the Trans Mountain Pipeline, Kenny versus Horgan, as well as the UNDRIP legislation, forestry crisis, ride sharing. You know, all those are pretty substantial stories for a lot of British Columbians, and there's more, and we'll talk about more. But those three really stood out. They stood out for the voters. They stood out to me. I'm sure they they stood out to other journalists covering this place because, you know, 2019 was the year of ICBC money laundering and obviously the legislative scandal right here. The OK, those stories stood out for me, too, for sure, because I just wrote a, a, a year in review for the province newspaper, which was in our paper yesterday. And people can still find it online, theprovince.com and check it out there. I put up at number one the legislature spending scandal. So let's talk a little bit about that one. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's one that really broke um, in 2018. I mean, that was the day that Gary Lenz and Craig James, these two high-ranking officials, the two top unelected officials in the whole building, were marched out of the building under a police escort, accused by Daryl Plekis, the speaker of wrongdoing. That kind of set in motion this scandal, which we still can see, we continue to see unfold during 2019 what were some of the big developments on that one yeah the gift that kept on giving to reporters yeah, right. like us right so in january daryl plekis came out with his report we were there at a meeting where he presented this report and in it were all these accusations that we had not heard anything about and the incredible yeah. thing is smitty you know you've been around here long enough when a big story like the two most senior officials get trotted out of the building very quickly do we all find out the details well in this case Nobody had any idea. Yeah. You know, some rumors were around, but there were no real substantive rumors. And then in January, the report comes out. The wood splitter, yeah. the alcohol, the retirement checks, the suits, the suitcases, all of this that unfolded as part of the scandal came out in January. And then 
It kept on giving, right? A secondary report from Plekis that said that, you know, Gary Lenz and Craig James went on a trip that they described as earthquake preparedness, which yeah. actually was a whale watching trip. They went on another trip to figure out what it was like to be in a big building during an earthquake, which was actually a baseball game in a T-Mobile yeah. Stadium in Seattle. And then... The McLaughlin report came out. Yeah. That led to the retirement and resignation of Craig James, but cleared Gary Lenz. And then another report comes out later right. in the year from Doug Lepard, uh, the former deputy police chief at the Vancouver Police Department. Lepard saying uh, that what he found was that Gary Lenz had lied to McLaughlin. Ultimately, before that report came out, just a few days before Gary Lenz retired as well. He still stands by his innocence, though. Craig James, we haven't heard from. Uh, Gary Lenz, we have heard from, and he says he never lied, and he just couldn't have come back because of the relationship with Plex. Okay. So all of this, one story, you know, they kept on giving. Right, and so both guys are gone, but it ain't over yet. It's no. still continuing because there's still a police investigation going on with two special prosecutors in place, so... We're going to see some new chapters on this saga in the new year. What's the latest on that? Yeah, so the expectation, I spoke to Daryl Plekis a few times at the end of the year for year-end interviews, and we'll have a story running on Global BC tonight, my year-in-review story, which was the legislature scandal. And in it, we hear from Daryl Plekis, and his expectation is that there will be charges coming in 2020. That's he what believes, that's what Plekis told you? He believes that okay. both James and Lenz will be charged, I think, Wow. stronger sense that Craig James will be charged. We have to let the process play its way out. It will be a substantial story in 2020. We will see what those special prosecutors find and if there's enough to charge James, Lenz, one of them, both of them, or neither. Okay, another one of the big stories for you, as you mentioned, was the money laundering saga, another one that we saw kind of unfold throughout the year. And I remember at the start of the year, Premier John Horgan, when he was asked about, look, you guys have revealed all this money laundering stuff, and it was a very kind of diabolical picture that was painted by the government here of money laundering being connected to an unaffordable housing market, to hundreds of overdose deaths from fentanyl. I mean, this is just a, such a disturbing picture that was painted here. And Horgan was under a lot of pressure to do something about it. What about a public inquiry into this money laundering situation? He didn't want to do it. That was my read on it at first. But then the pressure continued to build, and he did eventually call uh, a public inquiry into money laundering, which I guess we're going to see in the new year. Right. It's another one of those stories. Didn't start in 2019. Money laundering's been happening for a long time. The first Peter German report was 2018. We started to see a glimpse of the effect of money laundering on casinos. But 2019 brought the second German report, which showed the impact that it had on the housing market, You know that it influenced prices upwards by right. more than 5% solely because of money laundering, as believed by Maureen Maloney, who was an expert tasked with Looking at that, we also saw that billions of dollars were laundered through BC, through the casinos, through housing. And then, as you mentioned, I think your read is exactly right, Smitty. John Horgan did not want to call this public inquiry. The issue with public inquiries is that everybody lawyers up. It's costly. Uh, you know, it's a long, drawn-out process. But it will be guilt finding. I think in this mm. case, the public wants to know who was responsible for this. Was it the previous government? Was it the casinos? Was it the lottery corporation? You know, what impact did these Chinese gangs and who are these people who are involved in all of this? A, money, a public inquiry will help find answers, not to all of those issues, but to some of them. And that, again, will be a huge story in 2020. Who is asked to take the stand? Who has to testify? 
And I think Rich Coleman, the former minister, his name has been bandied about a lot here. That is going to be one of the biggest stories of 2020 is when Rich Coleman, if it happens this year, which is expected will, will will stand up in front of that inquiry. And what will he have to say? for Okay, we just got a minute left here. And the politics of this thing is fascinating. And I think one of the reasons that Horgan was resistant to the idea of a public inquiry was you sort of give up control of, of the of the story when you hand it over to an independent commission. This thing had been like a political wrecking ball for the NDP. They'd done a lot of damage to the Liberals in tw- in 2019 with this story. But I don't know. It could cause a lot more damage here. We just got 30 seconds here. Yeah, it could. And we'll see where the fingers point. You know, Mike Farnworth was the minister responsible when the NDP was previously in government under yeah. Premier Glenn Clark. And, you know, will they go all the way back to that point? I don't think so. But okay. you're right. It could cause some damage to them as well. Okay. All right, Richard, let's talk about some of the other big stories in BC over the past year. We talked a lot about ride hailing the long wait for it and lack thereof these services the government promised over and over again that we'd have these services by the end of the year the year ends tomorrow the services are still not here so it's a promise made promise broken i guess but what's the status of this uh, ride hailing so the passenger transportation board which is independent has only six permanent staff they seemingly are struggling through all these applications. They have 22 more to look at. I've already touched base with them today. It doesn't sound like any announcements coming today, which means that there's no hope that these companies will be approved uh, in time for tomorrow, New Year's Eve. It obviously will come in the new year that we'll hear about the applications of Lyft and Uber, the two largest ride-sharing companies in the world. The expectation is that they will be approved to work in Metro Vancouver, but you know what does that mean? Yeah. There were the restrictions put on in 2019 from the government when they passed legislation to require a class four license. So that's a commercial license. We know that these companies have struggled to recruit drivers. We also know that there's this challenge going on now before the labor relations board from UFCW, a major union that is saying that Lyft and Uber should be required under BC's law to make their drivers employees. That would mean salaries, benefits, and that would damage the business model that Lyft and Uber have. So because right of- now, because Uber and Lyft are saying, no, these guys are not our employees. Right. They're independent contractors. Sure. So we don't have to pay them minimum wage or vacation pay or overtime or benefits or any of this other stuff. If this labor relations board said, no, 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 these people are employees well, that changes the whole ball game, doesn't it? I mean, that could happen too. Yeah, and we've seen other jurisdictions do this. California yeah. has passed legislation. New Jersey has levied serious fines on these companies. So in New Jersey, a lot of those are New York City uh, operators. So, you know, it's a really interesting issue. Rideshare exists almost everywhere else in the developed world. And BC is one of these final bastions that has pushed back against these companies. And it's interesting, public sentiment is pretty split on that, Smitty. We'll hear from a lot of people who are furious it's not here yet, but you'll also hear from people that say these companies are no good, uh, that they take advantage of people, uh, that, you know, they push out they hard cause traffic jams. Yeah, that congestion's a huge issue that the government's Climate change. On. Right. So that's one of the big issues of 2019 and will become, I'm sure, one of the big issues of 2020 as well. Okay, let's talk about another big story this year, uh, Richard, and that is the ICBC dumpster fire still burning away there. One of the top priorities for Attorney General David Eby this year, who famously hung that nickname on them, the dump, the dumpster fire, was to extinguish the flames. But ICBC is still losing, losing money. And Eby suffered a big setback this year when he lost that big court case. 
Yeah, it was huge. This yeah. was a massive issue in 2019. Three different things. First, the major changes that came in April 1st. Everyone will remember the soft tissue injury cap, soft tissue injuries defined by the government. With that came in some changes around capping expert reports. And I'll get to the ramifications of that in a minute. Also a change to the tribunal system where to try to cut down on legal fees, uh, the BC government has implemented a tribunal system where cases with settlements can be heard rather than going in front of a judge every time, lawyering up, there's a more streamlined system. Then in September, the big changes came in, good drivers pay less, Bad drivers pay more. We heard a lot of stories about bad drivers, meaning yeah. young drivers, oh, inexperienced yeah. oh, drivers. Oh, they got walloped. Paying a whole lot more. Oh. And then this big decision from the BC Supreme Court that you mentioned that uh, it was deemed unconstitutional, the changes from the government to cap uh, the expert reports. That is a $400 million hole blown into the budget. Uh, it has led to some serious questions around whether this government continue, can continue to balance the books going forward and has led to them having to dip into contingencies. So that was a big blow. Government's still trying to figure out a way to cap these expert reports. You know, what they are is I think people will be familiar with the idea that, you know, in a settlement case, uh, the victim comes forward and hires a medical expert to say, hey, look, these are my injuries. This is how much my settlement This is how be. it's affected my life right. and why I need money from ICBC and why I can't to compensate. Work. And, and then yeah. ICBC comes back and finds another expert that says, well, yeah. actually, it's not as bad as you think. And then the victim finds another expert. And yeah. all of a sudden, you have a dozen experts who have all been paid pretty well for their reports. And that money all comes out of our premiums that we pay to be drivers on the right. road. Right. So David Eby tried to put a cap on that, saying you can't. You didn't say you can't use these expert reports, but you can only use a very, you know, one right. or two of them, depending on the, the value case. of, the, of yeah. the case. And the trial lawyers who are mad as hell, these are the <laughs> lawyers who represent people injured in car crashes. You see their commercials on TV all the time. They went after EB tooth and nail here saying, no way, we're going to fight you in court. They won on that big case that you mentioned. Yeah. EB said it's going to cost ICBC 400 million bucks. And they're fighting them on the other ones too, like the cap on the payouts for for soft tissue injuries, like a whiplash is kind of the classic one. The lawyer's fighting them on that too. Those are still in front of court. He could lose again in the new year, and that and makes that it would an even bigger the whole problem. Thing. You know, the, the province is projecting they can balance the books based on those changes. If they can't have the caps on soft tissue injuries, that goes out the window. Concussions is another debatable point in all those soft tissue injuries that will be yeah. a big part of the trial lawyer's case. Right, and a little interesting kind of thing that I noticed that EB did late this year was he stepped in and ICBC has was scheduled to put oh, yeah. in a, a rate a new rate request for the new a new premium increase EB stood it stepped in there and said no no we're going to delay requesting an ICBC rate hike until we do some more reviews and studies and I think that to me was this government's worried about this ICBC dumpster fire especially if it leads to huge honking rate hikes for drivers that the NDP could get punished for by voters in, a, in an election. Because we didn't even mention the rates went up 6.3% on basic last year. Yeah. We don't know because ICBC competes how much it went up on optional. It was much more than that. ICBC's a big political issue in this province, to say the least, especially when you got the Liberals sort of suggesting that maybe we should privatize ICBC. That's going to be a big fight in 2022. I think that will be the biggest yeah. issue of the 2021 election. If we get to that point, and I think we will, 
ICBC, what do we do with it? Is it privatization? Is it more options? You know, Andrew Wilkinson has said, oh, he would launch a review to look at best practices elsewhere. I think the public will want more than that in terms of a plan of how you move forward with the public. Yeah, I mean, Wilkinson and the Liberals will be under pressure to say exactly what you guys would do to fix this. I mean, they love kind of heaping scorn on the NDP over this. But then when you try to pin him down, well, what would you do about ICBC? And then he starts ducking and dodging. Yep. So, you know, he'll be under pressure to, to say exactly what he would do. Let me ask you about a story that I think you did a great job on in, in 2019, and that was this move to permanent daylight savings time. <laughs> and this is one where Horgan, the, the Horgan government introduced a bill that would allow the, the province to move to permanent daylight savings time. So no more falling back and springing forward. Is that going to happen in the new year? Are we going to go to one time for the whole it year? better, Smitty. Yeah. This is my favorite story of the year. Yeah. It's one of those things, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't have a huge impact on our lives, right? It's not like climate change or ICBC or the other things we've mentioned, which can have a serious impact. But this has a pretty substantial impact twice a year, especially if you yeah. have little kids like I do or a pet uh, you know, there's an impact with having to switch the clocks. And there is a substantive debate going around about how we should do this. And, you know, part of what we saw in 2019 was the largest public consultation in BC's history. More people went online, more than 220,000 people to express their opinions about what they thought about daylight saving time. As a TV reporter, I go and I have to do streeters, talking to people out on the street. Yeah. This is one of those things you, everybody has an opinion. Everybody yeah. has a thought. Uh, we saw more than 93% of those respondents in the public consultation saying they want to get rid of the seasonal time changes. Yeah. But like you mentioned, the BC government didn't go ahead and do it because they're waiting right. for our friends in California, Oregon, and Washington. And it's complicated down there because unlike Canada, the U.S. states actually have to go to the Congress in Washington and get Congress to sign off on the states changing. I think it will happen. I'm hopeful it will happen this year. I would encourage Premier John Horgan to go at it alone, at least in the short term, if the U.S. can't get itself around to it, because eventually but, they will. But we saw some interesting intervention on that story this year from some researchers yes, at UBC yep. saying, like, SFU. wait a minute, SFU, wait a sec, you shouldn't do this, because if you go to permanent daylight time, you're going to have a situation in the winter months right. where you're going to be waking up and your kids are going to be going to school or you're going to be going to work. And it's still going to be dark outside. And this is going to be bad for our health because it's going to mess around with our internal body clocks and stuff. And it's going to result in uh, injuries to our mental health and all kinds of other terrible stuff. So, you know, it's an interesting fight. And I just wonder if it's going to happen. And and there is science on both sides of things. You know, ICBC has said that we see an increase in crashes because it gets darker later under the current system where we switch to the shorter evenings and wintertime. So when you're driving home, it's in darkness. If we go to permanent daylight saving time, a lot of people will drive home and it will still be light light out. Uh, You know, right now, though, you think about when the sun comes up this time of year and under it's around 745, 8, depending where you are in the province uh, that will be an hour later if we go to permanent daylight saving time so right. as these experts at SFU mentioned you will have people walking to school in the dark a bigger part of their argument though is that it will disrupt our brain rhythm and you will and feel that. like you're permanently jet lagged yeah yeah I think there are Saskatchewan lives in permanent daylight saving time. I don't think a lot of people there are they permanently jet about lag? their permanent jet lag, okay. but it is important to hear these conversations. <laughs> Again, not the most serious issue that we face, but, but one of one. those that will have an impact on all British Columbians. For sure. Fred in Pitt Meadows. Hey, Fred. 
Hey, this this whole this this time change thing this is totally ridiculous. We got uh, here's an example of uh, Creston, BC, where they have uh, they're kind of like they reside on the uh, Pacific uh, time zone uh, thing, and uh, what they do is uh, when we change our clocks, they just pull a sign up off the highway and move it to the other side of town. So they they never change their clocks. They're they don't always change on, their clocks. They don't change. They're their always clocks. on standard time. Richard, you know all about this. Yeah, we've uh, had a look at Creston, and in the piece, they do things a little bit differently, too. It's, Fred, it's a good point, but obviously make a much bigger impact on Metro Vancouver, where the population Are they all jet-lagged in Creston, though? <laughs> like, if you go to Creston, is everyone walking around like zombies, or what? We don't know. For other no, reasons, there's maybe. A, there's a pile of Saskatchewanites living there, I think. Oh. <laughs> and, they're, and they're just like Saskatchewan standard time, because they <laughs> voted 60 years ago just that this whole... Uh, uh, you know, daylight savings, uh, change the clock thing was just bogus because the, the cows yeah. don't care what time it is. They, <laughs> okay. You got to wake you up know, and milk, milk your cows. You got to milk the cows. And there's right. a, okay, Fred, and there's thanks electricity in the barns now, too, which is a little bit different than 60 <laughs> years ago. Is this going to be like, like you mentioned earlier, they passed a, a bill on this, but yeah. it, it's what they call enabling legislation, which means they don't actually do it. It just gives them the authority to do it later. Do you think they'll actually do this? We'll go to permanent daylight I, time, I, or does it depend what Washingtoners and California? It does depend, and I think BC wants to wait. But Premier John Horgan heard from more than two hundred twenty thousand British Columbians. Ninety-three percent of them wanted to get rid of this. Yeah, I think you'd be sending a pretty crummy message to those people who decide no. to fill out your own public consultation if you didn't do it. So I think even Horgan if California, feels some pressure, but then we'd be on a different time zone from Washington State uh, and California. They're going to do it. They're going to do it. Okay. They're going to do it eventually. Let's all hope that they can sort themselves out this year, and then we don't have to switch the clocks in November. But I think if they don't go, there could be some serious pressure around uh, BC not being able to do it. Either. Let's hit a couple other quick ones, sure. Richard. In the time we got left, another big one this year was UNDRIP, which is the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which was. Uh, passed into law by the BC government. Yeah, an amazing emotional moment. I think an incredible step forward around reconciliation. John Horgan made the commitment. He wanted BC to become the first province in Canada to adopt this legislation. We expect the federal government to do it next year. I think, you know, being in the building that day and having prominent Indigenous leaders speak in the legislature around this not being a veto, that we can drive the economy while also ensuring that First Nations have a voice, provide consent for development on their lands. I think that was a really important step for BC. It's going to take a lot of time to actually implement UNDRIP, which means that we have to apply the United Declar United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People to all legislation in BC. It will take some time to actually implement it, but it was an incredibly emotional day and an important step for BC around reconciliation. Okay. Horgan bent over backwards. He kept saying, it's not a veto for right. First Nations. It doesn't mean that First Nations are going to say, no, you can't, you can't build a pipeline, you can't have a mine, you can't develop a ski hill. But it does give First Nations more power, though, doesn't it? It did. And you said pipeline, didn't you? <laughs> and that's yeah. another one of the big stories of 2019, obviously, yeah. right? The relationship between John Horgan and Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. It feels like he's been around a while, but he was elected in 2019. I was in Edmonton when they met for the first time face-to-face -face at that Western Premier's meeting. Everybody was like, oh, what's it going to be like? Are they going to bash heads? Well, they found some things to agree on, but they clearly disagree around pipelines. I think... The First Nations part of this is very important as well. And that relationship between Kenny and Horgan will be an important one to watch going forward. You know, we also saw 
this year, substantial steps going forward around liquefied natural gas and what UNDRIP could mean for the development of that major project. So 2019 was a, a significant year around resistance of big energy projects, but ultimately I think both those big projects will, will go forward in the future. It's got about a minute and a half left here. Another big one was the forest industry yeah. really taking suffering some setbacks in 2019, including a brutal strike on Vancouver Island that's still going on. Yeah, and I think it caught a lot of people off guard. I think people knew that struggles were coming in the forestry sector, but I don't think they thought it was going to hit this hard. Yeah. Thousands of people out of work uh, based on curtailments and closures. We have thousands out of work on the ongoing strike, and that strike is having an impact on contractors that rely on the Western Forest Products Mill. So that's one of those issues that affected a lot of people really hard and, and really tough during the holiday season for people not getting their paychecks. Yeah, one minute, Andrew Weaver stepping yeah. aside as the Green Party leader. Adam Olson steps in as the interim leader. Who will be elected as the permanent leader of this party? Yeah, so it's going to be interesting. Sonia Furstenau likely will run. We don't know for sure yet. She is the last of the green MLAs you didn't mention. Yanina Campbell is the deputy leader. She ran in New West for the party. But I think the Greens need to try to look outside of the box, right? Maybe some of these Vancouver city councillors that are green, huh? that's a possibility. Maybe Joe Keithley, the Burnaby oh. city councillor who has uh, run for the Greens before, or think way outside and find a tech entrepreneur or an environmental entrepreneur and, and try something new. But I think they need someone in the lower mainland, not Vancouver Island. We'll see. Very busy year. I got a feeling 2020 <laughs> could be even bigger. Thanks a lot, Richard, yeah, for coming thanks, in. That's Richard Zussman. He is the very fine global news reporter at the BC Legislature with your year in review in BC politics. We're talking a lot today on the show about the consequences of impaired driving, and that's especially in the aftermath of the horrifying crash that we saw early yesterday morning in East Van at East First and Renfrew. The a taxi cab T-boned by a car to go. Vancouver police suspect alcohol, a factor in this crash that claimed the life of 28-year-old taxi driver Sanifal Singh Randawa, who tragically died in that crash yesterday. Tomorrow night is New Year's Eve. A lot of people, of course, will be heading out, having a few drinks to ring in the new year. My next guest wants to tell you, do not be tempted to get behind the wheel of a car if you've been drinking his life has been changed forever by a drunk driver he works now with mothers against drunk driving to get the message out his name is jeremy cook and i'm very pleased to welcome welcome him hiya jeremy hi how's it going i'm great jeremy thanks a lot for coming on yeah no problem let's go back to the the date of the crash that you were involved with back in 2013 you were just what 15 years old at the time right yep i was 15 all right tell tell me what happened uh basically just me and some friends were at a local concert and we were heading home about a block away from my house we were uh t-boned by a drunk driver he was three times over the limit uh, for uh, alcohol, for his blood alcohol level, and he was speeding quite harshly. So that was it, in uh, the, was that in Nanaimo? That was yeah, just in Nanaimo here. Okay. How badly were you hurt? Uh, pretty severely. Uh, I was the second worst off in our crash. <laughs> I had uh, two 
breaks in my leg. I had broken ribs, collapsed lungs, broken collarbone, and traumatic brain injury. And uh, I, the optic nerve in my right eye was nearly severed. Wow, I'm just I'm I'm sorry to hear that that you've gone through this. Where where were you where were you seated in the vehicle? I was seated in the middle back. Okay, and you mentioned there was, was there someone else in the in the, the what about the other passengers in your vehicle? Any, there were other injuries there too, right? Yeah, the driver was very severely injured. They had to medevac her to uh, Victoria Hospital, and there was just different levels of injury for the other three in the car. It was a full car, uh, five people. All right, Jeremy, that was the start of a long road back for you, and you very bravely faced uh, recovery from your injuries. Can you tell me about your your recovery? Yeah, I did uh, physiotherapy for a, long, uh, a lot of years and neurological physiotherapy to get my brain injury a little more manageable. And it was about four years. Uh, it's not gone. I wouldn't say any of my injuries are gone. I still wake up every day in pain, but we're working on getting it more manageable now. Okay. Um, have you, how has this affected your life? I mean, obviously these are severe injuries that you suffered. Have you been able to return to work or anything like that? Or what's, what's your life like now? Uh, I've tried to work a few times. Uh, it's never lasts too long. I get very you know, stir crazy just sitting at home. So I keep trying, but now I'm, I'm finally, after five years after I graduated, going back to university and going to see how that goes. Wow. Wow, that's great to hear. Where are you planning to go? Uh, I'm starting at uh, Vancouver Island University. Oh, that's awesome, Jeremy. I'm, re I'm really pleased to hear that. I, I know you're working now with Mothers Against Drunk Driving. What is the What is the message you want to get out there to people, especially with New Year's Eve tomorrow night? Yeah, just, it's a pretty simple message, but don't, just don't drink and drive, you know. it. One person made the choice to get behind the wheel and five lives were changed the night of my crash for the worse. And it happens, like, at least once a day across Canada. Like, it's, it's not worth it. You can call a cab or you can figure out another way home. Right. Um, we've got tough drunk driving laws here in British Columbia, the toughest in Canada, we're told. Do you think it's making a difference, or do you think it's still there's still too many people getting behind the wheel here, drunk? Well, even one person getting behind the wheel drunk is too many. But yeah. if the harsher laws are going to help, which I think they've started to you know, slow down the number, then you know, every little bit helps. Was the uh, in the in the case and you're in the collision that you were in, involved with the, the drunk driver in that case? What happened to the driver? Uh, he was, you know, it took a few years for the court process, but he he was sentenced to I, I want to say six months. He served less than that though, and he was from Ontario, so he's just back in Ontario living his life by now. Jeremy, I think you're a very brave guy, and I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your story and the important message you have today for our listeners. Thanks a lot.
Yeah, thanks for giving me the opportunity. Semi, let's talk a little hockey now in the World Juniors underway in the Czech Republic. Always a popular tournament at this time of year. These kids play their hearts out, and it's always interesting to get a glimpse of potential future NHL superstars, and it's always really entertaining hockey. This has been uh, kind of a strange tournament for Canada here so far. I mean, they started off great beating the United States, and then on Saturday they just got smoked by Russia. They are playing again today. Let's find out how they did. Let's check in with Jay Janauer now, Global BC Sports Anchor. Hiya, Jay. How you doing, Michael? I'm doing great, man. Thanks a lot for coming on. So how did Canada do today? They beat Germany, which was expected. It was a much-needed victory for Canada, who now, after that brutal loss against Russia, which you mentioned, the uh, worst defeat by Canada, 6 nothing loss in 43-year oh. history of the tournament, they now control their own fate for the big game tomorrow against the Czech Republic, uh, and they're playing the Czechs in the Czech Republic. This will be a hockey game that the entire country will be watching. Okay, good news that Canada bounces back today against Germany. I guess once upon a time, Germany might have been considered a pretty weak opponent, but they've improved, haven't they? They have improved, Michael, but when you look at the, the last 10 years at the World Juniors, at the at the U-20 stage, which is the big tournament itself, they've been actually relegated seven of, of their last nine tournaments. So right. they have gotten better, but they're still not at the same level of Canada, the United States, Slovakia, uh, and of course Russia. Okay, this has been a sort of up-and-down tournament for Canada here. They started off great beating the Americans, which is always mm -hmm. good news. And then they got their butts kicked by Russia there, 6 nothing. What happened in that game? You know, I think those of us who watched the game and, and all of your listeners could agree, the Russians, Michael, looked so much faster, looked so much skilled than our Canadian team. And the one thing about it, Team Canada this year, it's a young squad that they took over there. And yeah. it can be very overwhelming. I actually just, just left uh, Vancouver Giants where I was chatting with Michael Dick, who's been involved with the Hockey Canada program as, as well as one of his assistant coaches. And, and that tournament, it, it evolves so quickly, Michael, that if you get on the wrong side of a hockey game, it can go downhill so fast. And that's what happened against that game against Russia. It was 3 nothing in the bat of an eye, blink of an eye, and the boys just didn't respond. Okay, big game tomorrow, right? It is tomorrow, right? The big one we got now? It is tomorrow morning. It is tomorrow morning, uh, New Year's Eve. Uh, because it's not in North America, we don't get to watch it in prime time. We'll be, we'll be waking up in the morning to watch it against the Czech Republic. And it's a big right. game, Michael. I mean, if Canada wins this, they control their fate. They have a better opponent when it comes time for the medal round. And when you look at the last decade at the World Junior Hockey Championships, we like to think that we're, we've been the dominant country. If you look at the stats, it's surprising. I'm going to blow your mind when I tell you we've only won gold twice in the last 10 years. Mm. You, you counter that to 2000 to 2009, five straight years we won gold. But since then, we've only won two gold medals. And when you look at, yes, the world stage has gotten better. Yes, the countries around Canada has gotten better. When we talk the World Junior Hockey Championships, and when we talk the Olympics for that matter, the only medal that really matters, and I hate to say it, is gold. You want to play for gold. Nobody plays for silver. Nobody plays for bronze. They don't hand out participation ribbons. We go for gold every single year. Oh, for sure. we got to win the gold if we can. Speaking to Jay Janow, our Global BC Sports Anchor. Now, you mentioned, Jay, tomorrow's the big one here with Canada against the Czech Republic. If Canada loses this game, are we out? No, but it makes uh, it makes things very interesting for them. And when we talk right. about tomorrow's game, the good news for Canada is they will have 
a couple of players back in their lineup. They, you know, they're they missing one of the one of their key players, a guy that we've watched uh, in the first first few games play very well for for Canada. He he was suspended a game for a headbutt that uh, that he threw in the game, and and it's one of those things that you don't want to see. Uh, Levine will be will be returning to Canada, and we'll also see what our our captain does. After what happened against Russia, not taking his helmet off uh, for for the national anthem at the end of the game, you know he's a kid, Barrett Hayden, who played in the National Hockey League for the Arizona Coyotes this year. This is a kid you want to be a leader. Uh, we're going to need our leaders to lead tomorrow against the Czech Republic. Okay, that was very unusual. The whole thing with uh, not taking this kid not taking his helmet off during the national anthem. What happened there? Was that just a mistake the kid made, or what was the explanation? Well, you know what? Um, Hockey Canada put out a very well-crafted, well-worded press release, and, and to to the young man's credit, 19-year-old Barrett Hayden, he he got in front of it and, and said uh, he was just in his own head. He he, he basically forgot to take it off. Yeah. I have a bit of a problem with it, Michael. Uh, you know, he was at the World Juniors last year. He knows the protocol. He has played junior hockey at at the major junior level for a few seasons now. Before every game, there's the national anthem. Players are on the ice or on the bench. They take off their helmet. I don't know. I can't get into his head. I don't know why his teammates who were standing beside him didn't say, take off your helmet. The Russians certainly noticed the disrespect that was shown. Their captain went to center ice, was pointing his stick, you know, and then afterwards, a lot of Russian players wouldn't shake his hand. I just don't like seeing it. It's it's poor sportsmanship, and 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 I don't think that's what you want to see from your captain. Yeah, that's un, that's unfortunate. What about this other player who's a very talented kid, Alexis Lafreniere? Now, this kid, I believe, yeah. is expected to go number one overall in the draft. Is he hurt or something? Yeah, and and, and and you know what? When you when you look at what happened to him in the in the early second period, um, charging hard to the net, basically caught his toe in the ice uh, as he was going through the crease folded over on his knee as well as his ankle. They did an MRI. They looked at it extensively. He was at practice yesterday for Team Canada. Didn't skate, but the good news is no structural damage, no fractures. They ruled him out. He didn't play today against Germany. They remain hopeful that we'll see him back in the lineup, and he is one of those talented players who can carry the load for Canada, who can handle the pressure, and I think we're going to see a similar effort from the Czech Republic on their home ice tomorrow that we saw Russia take it to Canada and Canada is going to have to weather the storm for I think at least the five first five minutes ten minutes and it sure be helpful to get the first goal man that must give nightmares to his agent I mean this kid's supposed to be very high in the draft and going to make millions in the NHL he gets he gets hurt oh my goodness his agent must be well, not uh, only that yeah you, you, you think about that you, you think about his his major junior team that that he represents as well and that's the danger Michael when you play a tournament like the World Juniors, it's a very compressed schedule. You go overseas. It's 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 go, 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 go. And when an injury like this happens, you think, oh, my gosh, all this flashes before your eyes. And as you mentioned, potential first overall draft pick in the National Hockey League. Uh, if you suffer a serious, serious knee injury, you go Ooh. from being first overall to maybe not being a first-round draft pick. Jay, thanks for taking the time. Hey, I appreciate uh, reading uh, everything that you write. Listen, I enjoy listening to you on the radio, and thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it, Michael. Oh, happy thank New you, Year. Jay. That's very kind of you to say that, and happy New Year to you, too. Thanks a lot for coming on. That's Jay Janauer, Global BC Sports Anchor. I think he does a great job.